Triple B's in the building. Big Baller Brand supports the NBA buzz and the inside buzz. We with you, man. Triple B style. Hi, and welcome to episode 17 of Inside Buzz. I'm your host, Mikey Domagala. This episode probably looks a little bit different. I have my Inside Buzz merchandise with the front logo and the back logo. Thank you to Alphabet Greek here in Plainview, New York for the hookup. You could find the merchandise in the description below and on InsideBuzz.net. And I would also like to give a shout out to my friends at Understair.com for giving me this personalized NBA Buzz desk topper, which you'll be seeing in every Inside Buzz episode from here on out. For episode 17, one of the most underrated scorers of the 1990s joins me. 5'11", Dana Barros was a 14-year NBA veteran who had his best seasons with Philadelphia in the mid-90s. He was a one-time All-Star and was the NBA's most improved player in 1995, where he averaged 21 points per game, 9 assists per game, while shooting a ridiculous 47% from beyond the three-point arc. Barros was an Xavier Brothers high school star and a Boston College legend. He's regarded as one of the greatest athletes Massachusetts ever produced and has his own 66,000 square foot basketball club in Stoughton, Massachusetts. Dana, I appreciate you coming on. I'm very happy to have you here. Welcome to the show. Pleasure to be here, man. Looking forward to it. Let's get it. A couple hours ago, we saw the finish of the bubble regular season and the play-in game. Damian Lillard and the Portland Trailblazers defeat John Morant and the Grizzlies. Can I hear your thoughts on the bubble as a whole and, you know, what the playoffs are going to look like? been a different experience for me I mean just not really having that atmosphere I can imagine how it must be tough for those guys after the first one or two games the adrenaline kind of wears off then it's just like pick up ball and you got to get yourself up you know once that adrenaline wears off but I thought some guys are ready and some teams are ready you look at Phoenix it looked like they were playing like in a church gym for the whole five months man and they was like oh you want to go play in the bubble let's get it you know and they they came out eight and oh that was amazing and then uh a lot of individual performances as well, so um, it, it was good, man. I missed it a lot. I see a lot of you and Damian Lillard. Who's a player in the NBA who resembles your game most? I'm not as explosive to the basket as he is, um, and, and obviously not as big. Um, but yeah, I mean, has the ability. I had a, I had a, a really good floater, man. I, it was just really good, and he has that same type of game, mid range, where he could really break down a defender because of these, because of the three point shot. And then still get into the paint and, and, you know, use his body and use the finesse of the floater to still score. I like that comparison a lot. I'm not Dame, though, you know, but I'm still DB, but I'm not Dame. <laughs> we got DB in the house, is right. And DB, let's take it back to the beginning. You playing, you know, high school sports in Massachusetts. You're a two-sport athlete, basketball and football. How'd you get to get into scholarship at Boston College when you were almost going to be a football player? Can you talk to me about that story? I'm taking a visit to Michigan and Miami for football. I had anywhere, UCLA, Notre Dame. I was top 50 football cornerback in the country. And uh, I had only two scholarships for basketball, Northeastern and um, I think URI, which was Jim Calhoun was at Northeastern and Al Skinner was at URI. And um, there was no internet, no cell phone, no computers, none of that. So, I mean, I averaged 39 a game in high school and got two offers, you know. So I was on my way to, to BC to play football. I took two football visits. Doug Flutie took me around for both visits. He was just on the cover of Sports Illustrated. So I'm getting ready to sign for football on April 15th, which is signing day. And the basketball coach called me. A kid left the basketball team. And he said, hey, you want to play basketball in the Big East? And I said, yeah, I'll play basketball over football. And I did that. That's how I got the basketball scholarship. 
So I was going to walk on the basketball team, actually, after football season. You get to Boston College, you get that scholarship, 19.7 points per game over the four years, 24 a game as a senior. How important was your development at Boston College, and how did it feel to get your jersey retired there, you know, years later? I mean, the development was, it was like throwing right into the fire because the Big East was the Big East. We had, you know, Syracuse and Sheriff Douglas, Derek Coleman, Ron and Syke Lee. You had St. John's, Georgetown was the top five in the country. We had three teams in the final four, you know, though, you know, a couple of those years we had two, you know, so me having to go up against that every single day, um, it was a challenge. It was, uh, you know, it was something that I relished, though. You know, I look forward to that. That's the reason why I chose to play basketball. The Big East was something I always wanted to play in. And I got to play against those guys every day. And I learned, you know, in the fire every day. And uh, I think that made me a better player over a shorter period of time, definitely. The next question, of course, the 89 draft. Seattle takes you. But you thought Seattle wasn't going to take you and Chicago was going to take you. You had a meeting with the Bulls and they basically told you, You're, you'll be suiting up next to Michael Jordan. You know, that didn't happen. You could have had six rings, but explain that whole situation and your emotion through all of that. Man, you had to bring that up, right? So you did a little research. I see you've been doing a little research. So um, the last dance was crazy for me because um, I remember being in Chicago on draft day, having lunch with Jerry Krause and Doug Collins, and then them having a 19th and a 21st pick. So they're telling me, you know, Dana, we're definitely going to take you with, if we don't take you with the 19th, we're definitely taking you with the 21st. And I jump on the plane like one o'clock, bugging, like bugging, like I'm going to play with MJ. You know, I'm, I'm talking about, I had an MJ basketball I slept with every single night in, in high school, bro, you know? So I'm bugging, I get home like five, I'm telling everybody, yo, I'm going to play with Chicago. Draft night, a lot of people at my house, so I sneak out the house, go to my friend's house, and I'm just watching the draft. It's the, it's the 16th pick, and I'm just talking to my friend about Michael Jordan. You know what I'm saying? Like, if I was playing with Michael Jordan, we're talking one man. And Stern says, uh, the 16th pick, Seattle selects Donna Bariosi. You know, I'm like, <laughs> Donna Bariosi? And I'm like, I'm swig, I cried like a baby, man. Like, not because not I was happy, because I, you know, I was upset I didn't get to play with Mike, but, um, it was a tough night, but then I actually got to Seattle, lived next door to Sean Kemp, Gary Payton Canyon next year, and had a great, great four years in Seattle, and ended up playing my first exhibition game against Chicago, and, you know, BJ got six rings, so, you know, I'm a little salty about that, but, you know, I'll get over it before I die, I guess. <laughs> you will, you will. You still had a great career, and the first preseason game, did you, did you line up against Mike? Crazy story. I tell it to my kids all the time at the camp. I remember getting in the game. First time I catch the ball, I catch the ball in the corner. I'm, I come out, you know, it's like the second quarter. I get in the game, I catch the ball. And Michael Jordan is in my face, like literally in my face like this. I'm like, whoa. And he's like, Danny, you ain't shooting no threes on me. And I'm like, oh, snap. Like, <laughs> I'm bugging, right? I'm like, I'm just trying to game, you know? So I'm like, Sean, get, get out the way, bro. I'm going one-on-one -on -one with Mike. Like, this is what I've been waiting for. So I jab step and I go by him. I'm, I'm going into my finger roll, you know? And, this big black hand just came out of nowhere and slapped the ball like 10 rows in the stands, man. And everybody's laughing at me. And he just put his arm around me. He's like, I like that little man. I like that. And every time I seen him, he would always say, all right, me and you, Dana. Mostly me, but me and you. You know, and I love that because if I never would have did that to him, we would have never had that little interaction time after time, you know. So that was special to me. Yeah, man. Oh, my God. Playing against MJ in your first, you know, taste of the NBA. So, you know, like we said, Seattle takes you. 
Then the next year, Gary Payton comes. Now, how do you feel about GP coming, them drafting back-to-back point guards in back-to-back years? Because you probably saw the Sonics as, oh, I'm going to be the starting point guard on this team. Now Gary comes in. So talk to me about that. Yeah, it was tough because I was second or third um, team all-rookie. I think I was second um, all-team all-rookie and um, had a great first year. Bernie Bickerstaff was the coach. He drafted me. And he left after my first year, went to Denver, and Casey Jones came in. And Casey Jones had a whole different philosophy. Bernie would tell me, baby boy, if you don't shoot the ball, I'm going to take you out the game. And Casey Jones would tell me, if you shoot that ball before it goes inside, you're coming out the game. So I knew at that point, we, we were in the lottery, and I'm saying, Seattle's, we were in the lottery, I'm watching the lottery, because it's the very next year after my, you know, rookie year, and I'm watching, because I say, if we get the number one pick, we're going to pick Derek Coleman, then I'm cool. But if we get the number two pick, we're going to pick Gary Payton, and I got problems, you know? So it ended up being the second pick. Uh, Gary came in, me and him, very cool, real, real good guy, had a, you know, a bad reputation as a talker, but people, he made so much money at that time that people just came at him. And, um, and he backed it up with his mouth and his play, you know, eventually. So um, I got to learn a lot from him, play against him every single day, and that made me a better player. And in practice, what were those battles like? And did he ever – I'm sure he jawed at you, but did you ever scrap with him? We never, ever had words, ever. There was a mutual – there was just a mutual respect where if I scored on him, I knew he was going to come down in the post with that back down, with the jaw sideways. Never said a word to me. I never said a word to him. But I will tell you this. It was constant. We had Nate McMillan on the team, Sedell three, Avery Bradley, and myself, and Gary, all point guards on one team. And Dale Ellis was a two-guard, and he was, was an all-star. So we all were fighting for time at the one. So the battles were battles, not just me. It was just Sedell wanted some time. Avery wanted some time. You know, so it was... Man, that was, that was a crazy experience to come into that with all those veterans around. And also on the Sonics team, Sean Kemp. And a lot of people forget about how good that dude was. If he was playing today, do you think he'd break the internet with his dunks and all of his crazy highlights that, you know, he'd be doing? Greatest dunker ever in game. Maybe not win a dunk contest, but ever in the greatest dunker ever in game. People talk about Zion. He's a 6'11 Zion with better handle better passing. I mean, he was the coast-to-coast dunk master. Like, he would get the rebound behind his back, between his legs, cuff it, bring it back from, like, behind his neck and dunk it on you. So, I tell, even in my camp today, I tell all the young kids when they ask me, oh, who's dunk? Can you dunk it? Who dunked on you? And I say, just look up Rain Man. That's all I'm going to tell you. Rain Man. Just look that up. The illest ever. So, all the young cats out there, stop playing, man. Do your research. That's what YouTube is for. That saved me. (laughs) For sure. And my next question was going to be about Zion because I see the comparisons with him and Sean. But since you answered that, vow for the city of of Seattle to get a franchise. Disgusting, man. Disgusting. That was the best fan base I think I've ever played in. You know, the Celtics have a great fan base, especially like the KG years. That was like unbelievable. Um, But Seattle was unbelievable fan base just – Great people in the city supported the teams through the good and bad years. And to have it, to, to have the team leave over, you know, not getting a new arena, not being paid by the, the fans themselves who had already renovated an arena, you know, it's a long story. You can look it up. And it wasn't anything about the fan support because that was phenomenal. So 
I think it's a travesty that it's been, what, 20 years? No, 15 years or something like that? About, yeah. You know, so I think if that team was taken, there should have been an immediate, an immediate, you know, plan to put a, a team back in place there. So I think it's, it's pretty sad because those fans out there were unbelievable. They say heart over height. You're 5'11". How'd you gain respect early on in your career? I mean, it was a daily battle, especially back in those ages. You had big guards like Jason Kidd and Gary Payton and, you know, six, four or five guards. So um, it was difficult because as soon as I would come in a game, every every t guy on the other team's bench would, would scream out, take his little ass in the post, take his little ass in the post. So, And if I didn't stop him after two or three times, I would come out the game. So I immediately realized that after the first month of the season, my playing time depended on me either stopping them or immediately coming back and scoring three, a three while they scored a two. So the first year I tried to outscore them in the second year over the summer, I just hit the weight room immediately after my rookie year, I put on like 12 pounds of muscle and I really just forced people to not be able to post. It just, they couldn't really post me up. We could back then you could really put a whole forearm on someone and it became very difficult for them to do that. And after a couple of unsuccessful times, they would, get, they would go away from it. So I had to fight through that. But um, more than anything, I realized after, you know, maybe all-star break, they couldn't guard me, man. They had a, a harder problem guarding me than I had guarding them because it was much easier to double team in a post-up situation than when I get the ball in the fast break and you can't do anything about 4-3 speed and 43-inch vertical. Like, that's... There's nothing you can do. So I, I always had that opportunity. So that was my that was my window into oh, oh you can't stop me either. Okay. That's where I went from there after my I would say halfway through my rookie year. After Seattle, you know, you're traded to Charlotte. And then two days later, you end up in Philly. You put in a great eighty two games, you know, just about fourteen points per game that year. Then the next year you you go berserk. And this is a fan question from NBA Buzz fan Kalobi Moore. So you shot 47% from three, named an all-star, NBA most improved player. You're becoming this long-range just marksman. What kind of scoring numbers would you have if you played in the shooting NBA today? I mean, I'm not, I'd be like baby Steph Curry. I'd be like 20, 23 and seven, you know what I mean? I'd be like, you know, in that, in that 20, 20, 23 range where, you know, and if you look at the numbers when I had it, like I, I shot, I think, 49% from the field. I never really took bad shots. I always played within the team. And even a 50-point game, I was 21 for 26. And I really felt like if I was would have been uber-aggressive, I could have had 28, 29-point-a-game season. But I, I never played that way. So, man, I just look at it as it was a blur to me. Everything just came together. I had a great um, first year in Philly. But that was my contract year. And again, I just dedicated my season my, in my summer to immediately the day after getting home from Seattle. And I remember telling Seattle before I got traded to, to Philly that this is my, I got, I'm a, I'm a free agent. If you don't trade me this year, I'm going to act up. <laughs> and I wasn't that type of, I'd never seen that side of me. And I'm like, listen, bro, I don't even know what I can do in the NBA. You, I've been sitting here for three years. I need to get out of here. And if I come back here, you're going to see a different Dana. You're going to see the Boston, the Mattapan Dana. And I was traded, you know what I mean? Like, and I, I don't really tell that story, but that's literally what happened. I had to go to GM. I didn't go to any out-minute meetings. I left on a red-eye flight the night we lost in the playoffs, and that was it. I didn't, I didn't return any phone calls, and that's actually how I got traded. Listen, I don't really blame you because 
you're right. You gain more minutes in Philly, more touches. You're the starter. You didn't have Gary and Sean Kemp around you. So I don't blame you in that. And to correct you, you aren't just 21 of 26 in your 50-point game. You're 22 of 26. Even more outrageous. So what do you remember about that? Kenny Smith once called you, you know, his toughest player to face when you dropped 50 on him. And he was a good player, but Dana Barros. (laughs) He just got rolling for some reason when he saw my face. And so... (laughs) Three. I mean, rolling. So he had his career high. He had 50 points against against us. Uh, We we were up like 17, 18. Us or me? Uh, don't me. Don't <laughs> screaming on the bench. Why you get him rolling? Why you get him rolling? And I'm like, it's all you, baby. It's all you. <laughs> so at the end of the game, he had 50. So Sam's like, they they do the reporters. He's like, well, Kenny had 21 and I had 25. So we basically had 52. So it's, it's even. It's a wash. But Dana Barros was that guy. That was just like I said, it was a blur. I just remember the game starting, and I and I was always a person who didn't take a shot in the first five or six minutes. And then, you know, by the end of the first quarter, I had six or eight points anyway. And I was, and, but all of a sudden in the first six minutes, I had like 12 points because just the game was up and down. And whenever we played West coast, I always was like 27, a game against West coast and 18, a game against East coast. You know, it was just a different, different style of play. We played New York Knicks, Miami heat, 88 to 84 games. So, um, you know, that game, and I just remember looking at the six-minute mark. I'm like, damn, I got 12 points. And then before I came out, like with two minutes left, I had 18 in the first quarter. So I'm like, okay, that's 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 that's, that's all right. So let's go. So come in second quarter. I think I had 28 at the half, something like that. And um, just the third quarter started going. We were down, you know, and everybody just kept telling me to shoot and shoot. And the funniest thing was when I got to 40, like 48, I remember, I'm not going to say the ref's name, but the ref was like, Dana, we love you. You never complain. If you get even touched, go into the basket. We're going to call the fouls so you get 50. <laughs> you know, and it, it didn't end up going down that way. You know what I mean? So it was no point shaving and nothing involved. But, yeah, that was just crazy to me because it didn't hit me till he walked up. The, all the refs walked up to me in a circle. It was like, hey, you're pretty, you've always been a good guy. And I'm like, damn, I'm about to get 50 if I hit this right here. So, yeah, crazy night, blur. and uh, But it's, it lives forever now, well, again, with this YouTube, man. If the kid doesn't know me, I'm speaking at a Celtics camp. He's like, who are you? He Googles me, and that's the first thing. That, <laughs> that and my rap song comes up, you know what I mean, from 95. <laughs> that was against the championship winning Houston Rockets with Hakeem. So putting up 50 on them, that's even more impressive. And then that year, you know, you're an all-star. Were you starstruck being around all those legends at All-Star Weekend with uh, the All-Star Game and the three-point competition? Yeah, it was a little weird, man, with Shaq and Penny Hardaway, Patrick Ewan, you know, just uh, Scottie Pippen, all those guys just sitting in the, in the in, um, being in the warm-up line, um, calling my name. Yeah, that was a little surreal. And um, I was a little – I wish I played a little more. I remember uh, – Brian, the coach of the Orlando Magic was the coach, and Penny Hardaway, was, that was his first All-Star game. So he really paid, played Penny like 38 minutes. I got like six, like eight minutes, you know. And uh, I was a little like, damn, I wish I had a little more time. But I got, you know, I got my little five, six points and hit my three. So, again, it was an amazing experience. I was in a three-point contest that weekend as well. Um, 
just a great man, great experience that I can share with my kids and my family, you know. And I'm hoping my research is correct, but was Moses Malone and Manu Bowl both with you, those tall legends just in Philly? <laughs> yes, I, I played with Moses for a year, Manu for a year, and Sean Bradley for a year, for two years. So, yeah, it was a little crazy. The, the Sean Bradley story was we could have had Penny Hardaway or Chris Webber, but they, they just, you know, decidedly wanted to take Sean Bradley. So I felt so bad for him because the fans – in Philly, you know, they, they wanted one of those guys and it just, he never really had a chance and it was just brutal, man. It was just, it was just brutal for him, man. I felt so bad for him. But yeah, 7-7 seven, seven and 7-6, seven, I played with both of those guys, Manu and um, Sean. And Manu's son is, he's a problem. It's a serious problem. I was about to ask you about him. Yeah, I mean, we had the same agent, uh, Manu and I, so for the, our whole career. So I was, you know, I would hear, oh, he's back in, in, at home in Africa and, and they don't know where he's at. We haven't heard from him and we think that he's not even alive anymore that he shows up a day late in training camp and he's, he's probably like, what's wrong? What's wrong with everybody, you know? Um, so he was a different guy, man. When he said he went back to, to his home country to fight, he literally meant to fight, fight. Like, you know, not, not play fight, fight, fight and, and go to war for real. So I, I, uh, I give him a lot of, you know, salute to him for that, doing that his whole life. Um, and just like, again, we had the same agent. So, man, it's to play against these, I mean, these young guys. Now you have, on the same team, you have Murray. Then you go, you have Donovan Mitchell. You have all these young guys like um, uh, Tatum, you know, Jason Tatum and um, Jalen Brown. You can just go up and down. Every Devin Booker, you go up and down. Luka Dockett, you go up and down. Every single team. The, the, the future is bright, man. You know, these young guys are exciting to watch. You know, they play a, a great style of game for the fans. I want to get your thoughts on this. Is the NBA right now in arguably the best spot it's ever been in with all this young talent and these 19, 20-year-old kids becoming superstars so early? It was never like that. I do, and I think the schedule change helps. I mean, you're, you know, I'm, I'm happy because I have basketball all summer, you know, coming coming up for the hopefully, you know, for the future and the long term. But to me now, you get all the you get all the exposure in the summer and the football isn't playing, you know, which is, is obviously the number one sport from a from a, a broadcasting standpoint, you know, like 10 times the ratings of any other sport. So I think you're the you're the big dog when it comes to that. You, you have the stage to yourself. And again, it's just so much young talent, man. I look forward to that intermingling with the end of the Durant, LeBron era, you know, where those guys, where you see the Larry Bird, Michael Jordan fighting for that, and, you know, and the LeBron and the Kobe's at the end of Mike's career, that's what we're getting ready to see, man. And that's, that's, that's greatness against greatness, you know, with, with, with the eras that, that are going to start to intermingle in these last couple of years. Another NBA Buzz fan question from Chad Wesley. As the last player to wear number three in Philly before AI, do you feel like your game and situation was similar to Iverson's? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think I was a, a different type of scorer. I think he was a lot more aggressive going to the basket. Um, and I was obviously a better three-point shooter. But if you ask anyone who played against me, you could not get up on me. Like, I would go by you in a millisecond, you know. So the people had this perception of, oh, he's just a shooter, he's a shooter. And they saw me the last five years of my career after ankle surgery and back shots in my back where I really didn't have that athleticism, but you couldn't get up on me at all. You, that's, I think, what made me such a great shooter is they knew that I would go by them and shoot the floater, and um, so they, they gave me that extra foot. So 
Yeah, I think it's similar. I mean, um, I played in an era where you would get clothesline if you did any type of shimmy coming down the lane. The next time down, you would get straight clothesline. There would be no fine, no suspension, two shots, a tech, and let's keep, let's keep hooping, you know? So there was consequences and repercussions to, to everything back in the game then. So you had to be on your team at all times. You played late 80s through the 90s and then early 2000s. Do you miss that toughness or do you think it's better for the league that they're, you know, they don't really take any crap, if you will? I think for the fans, it's definitely better. You know, the style of play where you can't even touch the guy and, you know, it's just a wide open floor where there wasn't even legal defenses for the first seven or eight years called in, in my first in my first seven years of my career. So the game was really compact and physical and just there were some playoff games in the 70s. So, you know, and it was very physical to where some fans were turned off by the your actual fighting and, and horseplay that went on. So I think it's a lot better today. You know, I just think the style of play, I, I think it's a lot easier to score. You know, to me, I, I don't understand why every single game, game after game, I watch, you just run a pick and roll and you just switch the center onto the whoever the best player in the world is and you just play one-on-one. And I'm just saying, I'm just Dane Barrows. And I was, I was double-teamed every single time. I had to, to call ghost pick and roll where I would dribble down and a guy would just turn around and run full speed at me so no one would know it was a pick and roll. And I'm saying, if Michael Jordan could come off a of pick and roll and switch Bill Cartwright on him, come on, bro. Like, what, like to me, that's the thing that, that blows my mind. I watched... Karis LeVert just run pick and roll and go one-on-one for 25 straight times, you know, with no adjustments. But I did see Dame get double-teamed before he brought the ball over half court, and it was well. So it's not all the NBA. But that's the only thing I wish they would make these great players earn those 35 points a little more. Because you're getting 60, 70, 50, 40 is not as as like it used to be, you know? I agree because sometimes I get frustrated and they'll dribble down the court little pick and just a chuck three and then rebound you know push up the court another three does that aggravate you as well because I feel like there's not as much passing and as much game plan as there used to be it's just the analytics man it's just if you shoot 33 percent from three it's like shooting 48.2669 from the two you know what I mean so yeah you can take more threes and you it looks crazier but at the end of the day if you shoot 33%, you're actually shooting 48.5% from the floor. So you can look at it that way, but it's not taking in situational basketball. You know? With two minutes left in the game, you don't want your fourth best three-point shooter just jacking up a, a three-pointer. That's the analytics fly out the window because you're not incorporating time, place of the game. You know, So that's the only thing that drives me insane is just, yeah, okay, I don't with – two with, with 230 left, I don't want the center – stepping out shooting a three if he's a 28 percent three-point shooter i don't care what the analytics say you know what i mean so yeah and and then also i think i get discouraged when they call a 32 percent three-point shooter a good shooter like i just want to jump through the espn and like slap somebody like you know like come on but that's not a good shooter like it's an insult to the reggie millers and the dbs and this you know the steph curries of the world because it's not that easy man you know and talk to me about your return home to the Boston Celtics. Five successful years there. Talk to me about how that got started and all the years playing there. Crazy, man. It's a crazy story. I, I need to write a book because I'm sitting 
I'm, you I'm, should, sitting you Washington. I'm sitting in Washington, right? And at the time, Washington had a squad. Like, you had Chris Webber, Jawan Howard, and they were right there playing the Bulls and, you know, in the second round of those playoff series. And they were – and I was going to sign with Washington. I was thinking it was like a um, five-year, $15 million. I'm like, okay, this is love. I'm, you know, I had never even made – my all-star year, I made like 600000 Like, I had never made any money. My rookie year, I made like two eighty. So – Okay, this is my bag. I'm about to get this bag from Washington. My agent is, it's like, hey, I'm gonna call ML Carr and just tell him you're about to sign with Washington. Just to tell him, hey, you sure you like as not as kind of as a joke almost, like because we had a relationship. I had talked to ML way earlier. He calls ML and ML says, hey, give me an hour. And we're like, yeah, whatever. We're eating. ML calls back with like five more mil on the table. And I'm like, what just happened? <laughs> it was a joke, like not a you know a joke, like. Yeah. So now I got to tell Washington, I'm not signing with you. When I left there, I'm like, we left him, and me and my agents just eating dinner by ourselves. And I had pretty much like, yeah, I'm good, I'm good, I'm, I'm, I'm you know. So now I got to call them, like, nah, I'm gonna sign with Boston. But it was amazing. Um, my family has supported me through college, man, in the Big East, driving to every game, watching me play. So it was great for them to be able to see me play at home for for uh, six years man you know um six years so that was amazing so five million and you return home while washington was going to give you how much if you don't mind me asking five year 15 million and boston gave me like six year 20 million with a, a like a mill signing bonus and that was my first money and i was i was bugging because i remember I got, it was a lockout so i didn't even get like my money up right away i got I finally got my check and i'm like Five hundred eleven thousand. That's the taxes, right? I'm like in Massachusetts, we're like, nah, this is taxes, right? So I'm like, five hundred and eleven out of a million. I was bugging. So that was my first experience with like, this is crazy, you know. So yeah, like I got stories on stories, man, all over the place. But that was a good one. I'm 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 sitting in Washington, and I I actually got to play home for six years. I mean, in Boston, Paul Pierce eventually. Uh, Antoine Walker, Kenny Anderson, and others. What do you remember about those guys? And just especially the young Paul Pierce. How did he impress you? Unbelievable, because I remember watching him in in, um, in college in the tournament and stuff and him getting drafted and him coming in. And we used to call him bad body. He had like a janky game where he didn't really look athletic. And then he would just take off and be like, ugh. So at first we were like, this dude is like bad. We called him bad body Pete because he just, he didn't have an NBA body, but he was athletic as hell. And he did just, we just didn't know it. So it was amazing to watch him grow. And we had, and we played a crazy game because we had Rick Pitino as a coach, you know, um, those years. I had ML for three years with, with Antoine Walker for three years. And then, um, and, and Rick Pitino came in. I had him for three years where, where uh, Paul was his rookie. So he got to play open and free. We pressed, you know what I mean, almost the whole year. And he was just amazing to watch, man. Watch him grow into being an all-star and just the player that he was and just eventually a Hall of Famer, you know? 2000 stabbing incident. I know you were close with Paul back then, and he miraculously recovered 11 stab wounds, wounds excuse me, 82 games, 25 points per, games, per game, 6.4 rebounds, 3 assists. Talk about his resilience for coming back with all that and, you know, overcoming all that adversity. 
Paul was my best friend. Me, me, Paul, and Eric Williams hung out every single game. Like, we barely didn't even go out on the road. We just sat there and played Sega Genesis football all the time, sitting in the hotel room. So I was with Paul the whole night. Um, I had just had a baby, or my wife was pre pregnant, one or the other. And I'm, and so I'm like, all right, man, it's like 1030. I'm out. I'm going home. I'm not going to the club. You know, we were hanging out, eating, and, and um, just playing at Sega at the crib. And they're like, I'm, all right, so I'm out. I went home. By the time I get home, not even... 45 minutes later, you know, I get the call about what happened. And um, so me being his boy, his best friend at the time, I'm at his house every single day. And, um, and I had um, a license to carry since I came from 89. I've had one ever since. So I always had it on me. If he got off the plane, I would walk him back to the crib until he got his all security set up with his people and his thing. So for like a couple of weeks, I did that. That was my man. And this is how much respect I have for him and salute to him because I remember being at his house and people calling, like, like saying it wasn't over. You know what I mean? Like, and he was like, nah, he called. I remember him calling Dave, like, nah, I'm not, I don't want to be traded. I'm going to stay right here. I'm going I'm to go face to face with this NBA. I'm going to be back next year on time and I'm going to get busy. And I remember me living here, we worked out a lot during the off season. And I just, again, salute to him because he, he was like, nah, I'm not, I don't want to get traded. Because they was, you know, everybody was like, hey, man, you think it's best if you go. And I, he was like, nah, I'm good. You know, and I just, I had so much respect for him for that, you know. I saw a recent interview with him about it where he broke down, you know. It, he was depressed for a lot of years after that, and it seemed like basketball was his escape. He said he even carried after that. I'm sure you would know that being behind the scenes yeah. with him. Talk about the, you know, the aftermath of that emotionally and maybe – conversations you had with him back then about that yeah i mean just think about being a young kid he had just bought his first house um beautiful house right next to the facility and um he wasn't like a guy that had a whole bunch of dudes around and all that he was coming to hoop you know what i mean he might have his mom in town or his girl in town for a couple of days or a week or whatever but he was hooping he was going to the gym and coming right back around the corner to, to home so to have that happen and you know to be such a free person you know like that to not even want to be at the crib, you know what I mean? He's got a, you know, he doesn't have houses all around him. He's Paul Pierce. He's got a nice crib. He's got some land. So I just couldn't imagine that, you know, being at home, not even knowing, sleeping, like you hear a little crack and you're like jumping up with the banger, you know what I'm saying? Like, that's how I would be. So again, it's just, it's, it's a, a tribute to his resiliency. And again, to young kids out there, like this is, this is how we get to this level. We have issues and we take basketball, we put it into a little bubble, you know, and we make basketball our life because we have things outside of, of that bubble that are forcing us to block them things out. And this is the only escape we have. And that's why a lot of players get to the where they are in life, not just sports. It's just, they have the ability to focus in that oneness, you know what I'm saying? To, to take all the issues and turn it into turn that stress or that pressure into something positive, you know? I've heard a lot of debate about if LeBron could play in the 90s or the 80s. Pop LeBron in his prime in the 1990s and put MJ in his prime in 2020. What do we get from both players? I think LeBron would be a hell of a player. I mean, he's so physical that he could play that physical style and not be injured, you know, as much as easy as someone else who would be, you know, not that not that height and not that physical size. So um, I definitely think he would play, still be a hell of a player, a great player. But if MJ played today, just um, 
it wouldn't be fair. Um, the reason why they changed the rules in '95 was because MJ was playing in, you know what I mean, with the with the uh, illegal defense and the hand checker. You know, I mean, uh, I mean, he 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 made them change the rules. So, I mean, uh, I just think mid 40s would be is probably his range of scoring. You know, in terms of that, because again, if you're gonna switch a pick and roll, and you're gonna switch a center or a point guard or a power forward onto him. I just think it's cake, man. It's cake all day. I don't, I don't, I don't get it. I don't understand it. And it would definitely wouldn't be fair if MJ was playing that, that, you know. And talk to me about your endeavors today. You know, your basketball club and where we could find you on social media. Definitely, I want everybody to go check out the DB3 podcast. It's going to be on my gram, YouTube as well. Uh, Dana Barrows three on the gram, Dana Barrows TV or Dana Barrows YouTube. Um, it's coming out next next couple uh, probably end of this week coming up. So look for the DB3 podcast. I'm definitely gonna have you guys on. I have um, I've been doing clinics and I've had smaller gyms, you know, one and two core facilities since I retired. I also do consulting for the Celtics, but this is my main thing. I you know I'm home all day, so I, I concentrate on just running my facility. I have a five core facility. It's all wood, probably. In my opinion, I'm a little biased. The best facility in New England. Um, you know, we have over 40 AU teams, and we go year-round basketball, man. Dana Browns Basketball Club, and it's danabrows3.com. And actually, um, I guess I could say it now. They're already playing at the playoffs are starting. But two weeks preceding up to the bubble, the Celtics were at my facility every single day, um, playing, getting ready to, to go down to the bubble. So, you know, my people, my family, and everyone, um, you know, my staff got to see that greatness every single day. Watch Jason Tatum, Jaden Brown, Kimba, and all those young guys. Um, and big up to Marcus. Marcus set that up. He's he's um, like the the big dog of that team, man. He got him. He got him cracking. So um, that was a great experience for my company as well. DanaBarrows3.com. It's funny because weeks prior, I did see Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown going one on one somewhere, and I was actually thinking. Where are they allowed to play? So that's interesting. So how many days were they there, and were they running full scrimmages, the full team? Go a little more in-depth about that if you can. Yeah, I mean, they were playing straight ball. I mean, it wasn't no no drills, nothing like that. It was straight hooping. It was crazy because I had my guys, you know, out in the parking lot because you had the Bentleys and the Phantoms and the Lambos pulling up. I'm like, man, y'all are killing me. How am I supposed to keep the people out? You know what I mean? So we had to have gate people at the gate, blocking the gate. Uh, you know, so it was pretty crazy, man. But it was, um, again, a great experience. And um, actually, I still had a couple of the courts open on the other end. So people who were getting trained by my trainers were, were walking out and would walk out into the parking lot and go, oh, my God, Jason Taylor will be getting out of the fandom. You know what I mean? So, man, it was just – it was pretty cool. But, man, again, I think Tatum grew a couple of inches. Um, and just uh, Taco was there, you know, so – uh, he, he hit his head a couple of times on the wall, you know what I mean, over the overhang. So it was great, man. It was it was awesome to see them young boys. I'm looking forward to that on Monday night. Amazing. And you want to talk about branding for your company, you know, just all those Celtics knowing that you got that facility to hit you up. That's perfect. And to end it, who do you have going to the finals and who wins it? Man, if you would asked me um, five months ago, I think that would have been a lot easier. I would have said either L.A., either one or Boston and Milwaukee. You know what I mean? That's who I have, the final four. And I still kind of lean that way. But listen, I'm going to tell you, as an athlete, man, this is, this is different. 
this is different. You see, when I'm watching games, I'm watching some some periods discombobulation on the court. You know what I mean? I'm seeing turnover. Then we go back turnover. Then we go back turnover. I'm watching some bad basketball, and there's no adjustment periods now. You know, so I look, I look for some teams to be those first two games. You better come out and at least split one to one. You know what I mean? Because you, I don't want to play Utah in the first round. I don't want to play Denver in the first round, Houston in the first round if everyone's healthy. These first round, Portland in the first round, if, you know, if they're playing well and knocking down shots. So it's scary to me. If I'm a player, I'm on edge. I'm on edge because I know we're not clicking as a team. We can't be. You know, Phoenix was the anomaly, you know. Um, I just don't see how you can be sure that this team or that team is going to play up to their ability. And that's scary, but I still would have to put those four teams in the final four. And I'm going, I'm going with the Celtics. Damn. And, uh, and the Clippers, man. I just think the Clippers are too deep. And um, I just, with Rondo out, you know, I was on the Celtics staff and Rondo was here. Huge, huge difference, man. He'll go say, give me the ball to LeBron. I'm running this and take LeBron off the ball and make sure that the offense runs differently and smoothly. And I think when he's on the floor, you don't get that shot clock down to three and four seconds every single time as when LeBron has the ball. And that's no disrespect to him. Obviously, he's the best player in the league. But I just think that's the way he plays at a slower pace. Avery Bradley as well, not being Absolutely. a defensive stopper. Absolutely. can't. And he picks up. Avery Bradley would be picking up Kawhi 94 feet or Paul George 94 feet working them. And that absolutely is a big difference as well. We're on pace for some great basketball game this postseason. Ladies and gentlemen, Dana Barros, episode 17 of Inside Buzz with Mikey Domagala. Dana, thank you very much for coming on, my man. Anytime, man. Let's catch up after the first or second round. Let's chop it up again. Anytime, bro.